Thank you for tuning into the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his sermon series into Jonah. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. You can actually thank that introduction as are the shoes, Mark. Mark and Tracy, thank uh, Kaylin for us for bringing up the Veggie Tales introduction there. I didn't even know that song existed, but the asparagus has some great biblical theology. Um, those, those vegetables are telling it like it is. The fish slappers, I'm not too sure about, but that one was spot on. So Jonah was this prophet who, who never really got it. We're going to be in Jonah chapter 4. And um, as we, we look at this text, this is probably the one section of Jonah where we get to see more of his heart, his motivation, just where he was after all this crazy experience that he has with the Lord. And, and he's this prophet who never really got it. And, and we ask this question, like, how can, how can Jonah go through all of that and yet still not get it? Right? And we probably should ask that question while we look in the mirror at ourselves. Because there's so many things that God is dealing with in our hearts and our lives that we still just don't get it. We don't grasp it at times. And that's how the Holy Spirit works, by just bringing us along in the process. Paul Tripp has a really good thought on this. He says, sin blinds. And because it does, the sin inside keeps me from seeing me with clarity. Sin is self-excusing and self-aggrandizing. Sin is self-righteous and other-blaming. Sin is self-atoning. It easily rationalizes away wrongs. Sin allows me to feel all right about what God says is very wrong. He continues, he says, we all suffer from spiritual blindness, but we all suffer from the fact that we live most of our time blind to our blindness. We don't see ourselves with clarity, but we think we do. We don't know ourselves with accuracy, but we are convinced that we do. Jonah is this prophet who is, who's blind to his spiritual blindness. And either one of two things is happening. Either, number one, Jonah doesn't really understand what divine compassion is. He doesn't understand what the compassion of God truly is. Or, number two, he doesn't realize or he forgets how much he desperately needed and still needs that compassion. And therefore, he goes on this um, wreaking havoc and deciding for himself who deserves the compassion of God and, and who doesn't. I want to just talk really briefly about compassion because it's one of those words in the Bible that, that threads together so many deep themes and brings us to the person of Christ and the truth of the gospel. Biblically, when you look at the word compassion in Scripture, it's a word of deep emotion. In fact, sometimes when you see this word in the Old Testament or even in the New Testament, it will say deeply moved. Jesus was deeply moved or God was deeply moved by the actions of the Ninevites. Uh, there's a story in the Bible that describes the wisdom of Solomon. It's a really famous story. I don't know if you recall it, but there's two women who give birth to babies at virtually the same time. Tragically, one of the babies is lost. And both of the women, both of the mothers, claim that the baby that lived on was her baby. And so they brought this case to Solomon, and, and Solomon came up with this test. 
And he said, here's what we're going to do, you guys. We're going to split the baby in two. This mom can take this half of the baby. This mom takes the other half of the baby. And, and the true mother just couldn't fathom that happening. Screams out, startled, says, no, no, please let the baby live, even if it means that this, this woman has this baby. And, and because of her deep, deeply moved compassion, it was revealed who the true mother was in the story. Uh, compassion isn't just an emotional word, though. Compassion is a, a word that comes along with action. There are actions that go along with compassion. It's not surprising that the subject of compassion in the Bible is more frequently than not is God. It's the compassionate action of God that moves him. When the Israelites are suffering in Egypt, he calls Moses, and he sees, he sees them, and he acts with grace and compassion to deliver them. When Israel was in the wilderness with no water for three days after they're delivered, it's the compassion of God that leads him to action. In the famous uh, golden calf story at the end of Exodus, when Israel had become idolaters, forming and worshiping a golden calf and attributing it with salvation and deliverance instead of the one true God of Israel, it's God's compassion that is revealed to them and allows them to be forgiven. The Hebrew word for compassion is rahum. And if you were looking for a good definition, uh, we would say something like this. Compassion is a form of love aroused when someone is suffering or vulnerable, which fuels acts of kindness and mercy. And often when you see the word compassion in the Old Testament, it's in the, it's in the plural form, rachamim, because the actions of compassion are always a, a plural in, in number. It's these actions that happen over and over again. Compassion is a word with legs on it. It moves to the vulnerable and for the vulnerable. And perhaps the, uh, the clearest understanding of compassion is a, another word that's deeply related to it is rahem in the Old Testament, and that is the, the word for a mother's womb in the Bible. The New Testament uh, compassion is produced from the gut. Uh, it's, the, it's the vital organs of the body where it is the seat of compassion is found. It's the life-giving organs of the body that move their way even into the heart when it describes the compassion of God. And it's, it's really no surprise that after Israel continued to disobey God, continued to violate the covenant, even though they were given a gift of the law, even though they were shown so much mercy and so much provision by God, it's really no surprise that even when they are spiritually wandering away in the darkness with no hope, and the covenant is in danger, and the king of Israel is gone, and they're off into captivity, it's at this time that the compassion of God is moved so much that he sends his only son, Jesus, to the earth. It was... It was an action with legs on it. It was a, a compassion that drove the Lord to do something for the vulnerable and for those who desperately need it. This morning, I want to look at Jonah chapter 4, verses 5 through 11. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to see three aspects of compassion as we go through this text. You're going to see that, that the compassion of God depicted here in Jonah's life and Jonah's story is, number one, it is unending. 
you will always need the compassion of God. Number two, it is undeserving. You can never earn that compassion. And then finally, number three, it is unrestricted. You cannot put a limit on God's compassion. Uh, it cannot be exhausted. It cannot be fulfilled ultimately in any way. Compassion keeps on going even when we think people don't deserve it. Number one in your outline, number one this morning, compassion is unending. You will always need it. As Christians, we need it. As unbelievers, we certainly need it as well. Compassion is unending. Look down at Jonah chapter 4, and I'm going to start reading in verse 5 here. It says, Jonah went out of the city of Nineveh, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade until he should see what would become of the city. I find that very ironic, knowing what God already told him and what he was able to see. Verse 6, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. In verse 5 here, Jonah departs from the city of Nineveh. And here again, in this tiny little story, just like chapter 1, we see Jonah kind of running away from God in many instances. In Jonah chapter 1, he ran away to Tarshish. In Jonah chapter 4, he runs away to the east of the city with the added description here that's different than chapter 1, that he did head to the east. And it's important, this eastward direction is important for at least two reasons. You just saw the same root word for east just a couple verses up in Jonah chapter 4. Look back at verse 2, Jonah 4, 2. And he prayed to the Lord, this is Jonah, and he said, O Lord God, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? Is this not why I made haste to flee to Tarshish? That word, made haste, is a Hebrew stem, Q-D-M. It's the same root word for the word east in verse 5 of Jonah. Um, the writer here, the author, is putting these two things together for a reason. He's associating Jonah's flight in chapter 1 with his going to the east of Nineveh here in chapter 4. And the point is this, Jonah is repeating the same mistake. After everything that happened, after his deliverance from the ship, from the storm, from the whale, after all of these things, it's, it appears that Jonah is no different in chapter 4 than he was at the very beginning of the book, when he was running away from the call of God and trying to escape the presence of God. And we all ask this question, did Jonah learn anything through this story? Is his heart fund fundamentally and dramatically changed by the grace of God? The eastward movement is also extremely important in the Old Testament because of what we know about this from the book of Genesis. Remember when God banned Adam and Eve from the garden? Remember he stationed the cherubim to the east of the garden so that nobody would enter it? Just a chapter later after that, Genesis chapter 4, Cain's departure. Cain settled east of Eden. Sounds like a, a book. You probably know it, Milton. When the people stopped to build the Tower of Babel, they were all traveling to the east. When, when Abram and Lot just cannot get together, they cannot figure this thing out, who's going to go where and who's going to do what, it's Lot who goes east. It's Abram who listens to the voice of the Lord and and allows him to go east. One commentator put it this way, he said, eastward movement often symbolizes a departure from God's will. 
All right, so what's east of Tulsa? Uh, we got to have compassion on these people from Kansas. Uh, it's just, I'm just saying, people need to have compassion a little bit, maybe, around here. Don't throw stones, don't do anything. Moving east, Jonah makes a booth for himself. Eastward movement, please focus with me, people, a little bit. I realize it's Sunday. Stay on track here. Moving east, Jonah makes a booth for himself, which is also very important in the Old Testament. The booths remind us of Israel in the wilderness. And actually, in the Old Testament, it describes a feast of tabernacles or a feast of booths that celebrates and remembers the time when God protected them and supplied for them and cared for them in the middle of the wilderness by allowing them to make these booths and providing for them with manna and all the different ways he provided water for them. The feast of, the, of booths in the Old Testament is a celebration of the end of the harvest. And it's a it's a gratitude, it's a thanksgiving feast that God has again mercifully provided for his people. I find it very ironic that it seems like God's provision of mercy is what upset Jonah in bringing about the recollection of the booths. Nevertheless, he sits in the booth and God appoints a plant to come over him to save Jonah the text says, from his discomfort by providing him with shade. And anytime you see that word shade in the Old Testament, it occurs about 53 times. It's a pretty technical term. You're going to see it used in one of three ways. Number one, it'll talk about the general shade of a roof or a shelter or something like that. It's a, a physical shade that brings relief and comfort to those who need it. Number two, there's a negative connotation, a ephemeral meaning, a lot of times in the Old Testament, especially in Ecclesiastes, we talked through that book recently, it talks about life is but a shade, a shadow. It's a, a metaphorical meaning. But shade is used most of all in the Old Testament to describe the spiritual and metaphorical protection of God. In Psalm 91, verse 1 and 2, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow and the shade of the Almighty. It's, uh, it's really inter interesting when we, we get older and learn things as we mature and develop. You know, when, when we're infants, we're probably the most vulnerable. Right? We, we desperately need our parents. We desperately need a parental figure, at least, to provide for us, to care for us. As we mature and get a little bit older into, into childhood and elementary, ages, um, we, we begin to become independent. We learn how to do things on our own, and yet we still rely on somebody in our life to provide us with, with basic needs, again, with, with food, with shelter, with clothing, the things that we need to live. And as we become teens, we start to figure out what our identity is. We get down to some, some deeper issues of, of security and, and who we are why we were created. Go off to college, we get some distance maybe between uh, parents and kids. By the way, if, if you guys are heading off to college sometime soon, kids, I'd really encourage you to, to get away from mom and dad. Figure out how to live on your own. Develop and mature. Find good friends and, and go through life in that way. It'll be one of the best things that ever happened to me was, was going to school 750 miles away from mom and dad. 
I'm not able to go home and, and do my laundry or, or rely on them in any way. It's not a right or wrong, just, just personal ideas there. If you're anything like me, though, you, you probably figure out kind of late in these college years and in these, these 20s, you can kind of figure out life pretty well without mom and dad. You can do things, you can make your own decisions. Actions lead to consequences. You, you learn those lessons pretty well. And, and over time, what you find is that your relationship with your parents will change. It goes from one of, uh, um, you know, protector to, to more of a friend, advisor, or even counselor. Personally, um, I, I really did think when, when I went through college and, and kind of just figured out who I was, my identity in Christ, became a believer, I really thought that those were the years I, I wouldn't need my parents anymore. And I've learned the exact opposite is true. Like, even, even at my age right now, I'm 41 years old, and I desperately long for and, and look for those opportunities to talk to parental figures in my life. And as a parent, I've been told that you never, ever stop being a parent. No matter how old you get, no matter how old your, old your kids get, you are always a parent. Um, it, it seems to be, at least in some sense, a, a practical application that the need for a parent is unending for all of us. And from a seemingly ridiculous little plant, Jonah is going to learn a very similar lesson. The need for compassion from God is seemingly unending. There's never a time when you will not need the compassion of God. And it's easy to miss this uh, when you read this text. So Jonah goes and he builds this shelter. This shelter was the best thing that Jonah could do in his own power, his own initiative, and his own efforts. He still needed God. He still needed God to supply the plant. He still needed the shade from God to give, to give him relief and comfort from the sun and, and an adequate shelter. And in many ways, this hut is a, it's a symbol of our inadequacy, of Jonah's inadequacy and the constructs that he has made, whether they're physical, ideological, or theological. Jonah's best efforts fall way short of what he needs from God. Spiritually, to mature his grace, his mercy, and his compassion. Remember uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Go back and, and look at that verse really quickly. It displeased Jonah exceedingly. Jonah was exceedingly angry about the compassion that was given from God to Nineveh. Now, in chapter 4, verse 6, Jonah was exceedingly joyful about God's compassion with the plant for himself. He's exceedingly angry about God's compassion for other people. He's extremely joyful about God's compassion when it comes to himself. Thanks, Jonah. God's compassion is unending. Number one, we will always need it. Number two, God's compassion is undeserved. We can never earn it. All right. Look down at verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant. And do a, do a study sometime. Every time you see the word worm in your Bible, it's almost always an instrument of judgment 
and condemnation in the Bible. It comes at some really interesting times when you read through. God appointed a worm and attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die. And he said, it is better for me to die than to live. God gave, gave Jonah three really hard object lessons as he sat east of the city of Nineveh. He is angry, he is waiting, in many ways he's hoping that the word of God doesn't come to fruition and he experiences and sees something different. He wants to see the wrath and the judgment of God, more so than he wants to see the compassion and grace of God. And so these object lessons are threefold. God planted a plant first, then a worm, and then a cutting east wind. And again, every time you see that word cutting in the Old Testament, it is in the context of, of some type of, of judgment or severity that is sourced from God. And there's so much to learn in this chapter about God's compassion, about his goodness, his love, about his, his holiness. Sometimes we read this and we think, man, God, just you've taught Jonah a lot. He was in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. Do you really need to continue to give him these hard lessons? Like, can we just back up off of Jonah for a little bit, let, him, let this stuff sink in for him, give him a chance to, to have a, you know, a come-to-Jesus moment, so to speak? God did not just accept Jonah as a prophet and then let him go his own way, and that's true for you and me too. God does not just accept us in the truth of the gospel and let us go our own way. There's often a lot of stuff in our hearts, idols, things we don't know about, that he still has to work through, reveal to us, allow the Holy Spirit to, to transform us. God didn't allow Jonah to stay in his foolishness. He didn't allow Jonah to continue running away from him when he desperately wanted to. Throughout the book of Jonah, God is relentlessly pursuing this rebel, renegade, and rebellious prophet. And just like a hunter tracks an animal or a pirate tracks down hidden treasure, God is relentlessly pursuing Jonah. He sends a storm, a fish, a plant, a worm, and a cutting east wind to lovingly allow Jonah to be miserable. This was God's doing. He was too holy to let him stay in his sin. He was too loving to let him continue to go his own way and not show him the error of his ways. His compassionate pursuit of Jonah is unrelenting, and it is certainly undeserving. And as much as it's, it's hard to read these things and know what Jonah's experiencing, it is the grace and the compassion of God that is motivating him to target his heart over and over again. The God of grace will never, ever, ever run from Jonah. He pursues Jonah over and over again, and the God of grace will never, ever, ever allow you to go in your own way without pursuing you in some kind of way. And even if he gives you over to your sin and allows you to enter into the consequences in, a, in some kind of a path of temporary destruction, even in that, he is continually pursuing you, trying to bring you to the end of yourself, that you might turn back to him in repentance and plea out for forgiveness. I want to point something out about God. You know, many people hear the stories of, of God in the Bible, and they come to these really bad, poor conclusions. Every, first of all, every person sitting in this room today, every one of you is a theologian. We're all theologians. Some of us are just better theologians than others. 
Anytime that you think about God and his actions in the world, anytime you think about life, where life comes from, you are entering into a question of theology as much as philosophy in existence. Every one of us is a theologian. One damaging conclusion that we often make and people often make about the God of the Bible is that he spends all of his time judging and condemning the wicked and blessing the good. That God is some kind of quid pro quo God. If you're good, Santa Claus is going to bring you lots of presents at the end of the year. If you're bad, Santa Claus isn't going to bring you any presents. You're going to get coal in the stocking or ice instead, right? We have this view of God that has more to do with fairy tales than it has to do with the text of Scripture. I love how one theologian put this. He says, the God of this book, the God of the book of Jonah, is not like that at all. God is extremely complex. Sometimes he blesses believers and judges pagans, but at other times he blesses the pagans and he punishes believers. He's not just a being of wrath or love, he's both and often in very unpredictable ways. What that means is you and I are not going to be able to manipulate God into blessing. You're not going to be able to control the grace of God. You're not going to be able to control the compassion of God. God is gracious and compassionate on his own initiative. If you are experiencing and being blessed by the grace of God, here's what I want you to do. You say, thank you, Jesus, because this is none of me and this is all of you. I didn't do anything to deserve the blessings that I'm experiencing right now. As God pursues us with his compassion, none of us, including Jonah, none of us will ever be able to say, I finally did my part, now God is doing his part and keeping his end of the bargain. Interesting, interesting word here. It says that God appointed a worm. Did you notice what the worm is doing to the plant? The worm attacked the plant. Anytime you see that, that verb in Hebrew, it's in a, a military context. It's in the context of warfare. God is fighting with Jonah. And he's fighting for his heart and the places that Jonah hasn't given it to God yet. The compassion of God is 100%, no exceptions, all the time, every time, undeserved. If your salvation has anything to do with you, you can probably guarantee you're going to lose it. But since it has everything to do with Christ and what he's accomplished for us on the gospel, it has everything to do with him and nothing to do with us. Our part is simply to repent, to believe, and God grants us the gift of everlasting life. He grants us compassion. He gives it to us. Number one, compassion is unending. You will always need it. Number two, compassion is undeserved. You cannot earn it. Number three, God's compassion is unrestricted. It has no limits. Look down at verse 9. Uh, let, me, let me back up here, verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down on the head of Jonah, said he was faint. He asked that he might die, and he said, it's better for me to die than to live. When verse 9 starts there, there's a pause in Hebrew. There's a, 
This is nothing to say, verse 9 doesn't pick up a dialogue. It's almost like a time has elapsed when you read this text. And it, and it begins, and, and God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yeah, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, and, and here's the final lesson, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night, and it perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Just a quick two observations as we close. Um, God will get the last word with Jonah as much as he wants to have it sitting east of Nineveh. The text ends otherwise abruptly. This is much, much like the end of the Gospel of Mark, the shorter ending where, you know, we're wondering what's going to happen with the disciples and all of the other things that are, are going on at the end of, of Mark's gospel. This one just kind of abruptly, there's no finality to it. There's no really uh, resolution in the book of Jonah. It just, just leaves him sitting on the hill east of Nineveh in his anger, and then and just he's pouting. Jonah is, is folding his hands, his arms, and he is angry with God for showing compassion on people who don't deserve it. Chapter 4 has two main characters in it. Each of them make a turn. The first character is Jonah. Jonah turns inward. He stops talking to God, and he starts talking to himself. And when Jonah starts talking to himself, he leaves out the truth of the God that he desperately needs so much. Jonah is making an inward turn. The other character in chapter 4 is God. God is doing the exact opposite. He is making an outward turn toward the people of Nineveh, showing his grace and compassion. Jonah is the most concerned about himself. God is the most concerned about others and about the entire city of unbelievers in Nineveh that have now trusted him and repented. The text draws this out by stacking three words that have the same root word, on them in Hebrew, okay? So when you read more than, look down at verse 11. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than, that's the Hebrew word, the stem there is RBH, 120,000, your text might say 10,000 there. That's just a, it's not an exact number in Hebrew, it just means to say that there's a, a multitude of people in the city, a great multitude of people. That's the same root word as more than, just there, so that's the second instance. And then finally, also much cattle, many cattle at the end is the same Hebrew word again. It would be a tragic loss for all these people to be destroyed. Many people to be destroyed. This entire city to be destroyed. Tragic loss. Jonah is seemingly unconcerned, uncaring, and apathetic about the compassion and mercy of God and the people who desperately needed it. Verses 9 through 11, the key word is, is pity in the ESV. Your translation might have compassion. The Lord said, you have compassion on this plant. You didn't do anything to it. And you're angry that I have compassion on people. God's compassion is, is unlimited in scope. When we read the book of Jonah, we can't help but ask a lot of why questions, right? 
First one is, if I was Jonah, I'd be saying, God, why Jonah? Why me for this lesson? Um, kind of wonder, why Nineveh? Why no other city? Maybe a, a more neighboring city in and around the area of Israel at that time. Why the, why the difficult pursuit of Jonah? Why didn't God just give him the storm and, and the fish and then let him go on his way? Why did he continue to, to repeat the same things? Why does the story continue? Um, recently found out that John Newton has written a hymn on a verse right in Jonah chapter 4. Um, I'll, I'll recollect the verses for you. It's all about this, this plant. Listen to John Newton's recollection here. He says, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's consuming power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul and every part. Yet more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed. And then he says this, he says, blasted my gourds and made me low. And that's a reference to this plant that God originally created to grow up over Jonah to give him the shade. And then he killed it with the worm. And as the, as the song ends from God's perspective, Here's what he says. These inward trials I, God, employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou might find thine all in me. Does that make sense to you? Um, Jonah still had a lot of stuff he went through deluge and disappointments because he still had idols in his heart that he hadn't fully given over to God. Imagine Jonah praying for faith and life and joy, and instead God gives him all these trials and difficulties and temptations and a hard calling that he doesn't want to fulfill. Why? So that Jonah will learn to turn and trust wholly in God, in nobody and in nothing else. One pastor said it this way, God sent to Jonah a deluge of disappointments to liberate Jonah from the idols that enslaved him, that drove him, and that controlled him. Eventually, I think Jonah did shatter these idols. I, I think he repented. I think that's why we have the story of Jonah in the book here. I, I, think it's, I think it's part of the reason why Jonah is here for us. It gives us a recollection not of his, his successes, but of his failures. And he says, don't do like I Learn from my mistakes so that you don't have to repeat them. It's a, a great object lesson for any coach or mentor. But I want you to leave your place in, in Jonah here. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 13. And I want to end with just a couple of scriptures in Luke. Luke chapter 13, look down at verse uh, 34. Luke 13, verse 34, this is Jesus 
here and what you're going to see is Jesus is kind of the perfect fulfillment of Jonah where Jonah failed Jesus succeeded where Jonah went off path Jesus brought it back to the straight and narrow and so Jesus here is praying for the city of Jerusalem, and he says near the end of his, his earthly ministry, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And yet you were unwilling. Anytime you see a, a vocative of address, you call that in Hebrew, where where the address is repeated twice. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. That is a, a way of expressing deep emotion. In other words, it's a, a deeply compassionate phrase from Jesus for his people and for his city, Jerusalem. In essence, God was saying to Jonah and therefore to us, I am weeping for this city. Why aren't you weeping for your, yours? Do you have a perspective that God is weeping for Tulsa? For people to know him and to trust him? Are we sad? Do we have compassion for the city of Tulsa? That we might see more people who are destined for hell trust God and experience the grace, compassion, and mercy that is undeserved, unending, relentless, desperately needed? There's more to this. Jonah was the prophet who at the end of his life, he went outside the city and he waited. Remember what Jesus did at the end of his life? He also went outside the city. He didn't wait. It was there that he was crucified. And in his last moments of crucifixion, he vocalized one of the most profound statements that would have been great to hear from a guy like, like Jonah. Remember what he said? Hanging on the cross, looking down at his mockers and people who were spitting on him unjustly, innocent Jesus prays to the Father, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jonah is the prophet that goes east of the city, and waits because he's angry at God's compassion. Jesus is the prophet who goes outside the city, initiating God's compassion for the least deserving. When you compare Jonah to Jesus, there really isn't a lot of similarities. Again, Jesus succeeds where Jonah fails, and he shows forgiveness to the people who need it the most. And so here's what I want to do. We're going to take just one more week and, and finalize the book of Jonah. We're going to close with this. Um, probably next Sunday, and just talk about some of the deeper themes of the book and try to bring some of this together. But about midway through, I asked you guys to email me. If you have people that you are praying for, that you are asking God to work in their heart and in their life, you know they're unbelievers, and you're asking God to do a magnificent work in their lives, that they might come to a true knowledge of faith in Christ for salvation, um, I want you to continue to email me. I want to hear more of those stories. And especially what I want to hear is if you've had any conversations with those people over the course of this, this teaching unit. What have those conversations looked like? Have any, have any of those trusted Christ through this time? 
a lot of the, uh, the spiritual warfare and the things that take place in our prayers for people when evangelism are the most powerful, the most needed at the time. So um, just continue to do that, and I would love to hear from you if you could do that. Uh, Tom Graney, you still here, man? He's going to come up. Can you guys uh, wire me up on the blue mic? I'm going to pray here, and Tom's got a quick announcement for us as we close, all right? Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, thank you so much for your love and, and your compassion. God, we certainly don't deserve it. We never could earn it. Um, I pray for a, a deep compassion for our city of Tulsa. Um, help us to look in the mirror before we are quick to judge and, and make calls on who's deserving and who's not deserving of the grace of God because we all know that nobody deserves anything but death and condemnation from you. You are holy, you are perfect. We are unholy, imperfect sinners. And yet you have chosen to show grace to us through Jesus Christ. Uh, I pray that the truth of the gospel would inspire us, would motivate us to pray for our city, to go into our city, um, to share the gospel with those in our city who desperately need it but don't deserve it. God, would you give us the courage and the strength and the boldness um, help us to continue praying for those opportunities. And Lord, just do the work in the hearts that only you can do through your Holy Spirit. We ask this to you, Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen. Amen.